This is an NBA Sound System presentation of The Pickup Game with Seth Greenberg, produced by Hall Pass Media. To watch the entire video series, visit hallpassnetwork.com. Now, to The Pickup Game. Before we get started, I want to thank uh, Val Ackerman and Terry Stocks for joining me, and also we're going to have Ed Cooley from Providence College here shortly. But prior to starting uh, The Pickup Game each and every week, we've done uh, something that I think is really important. That's basically... Thank the first responders, thank the doctors, the nurses, the hospital workers, and all those that are giving up and putting themselves at risk for the good of others. Uh, you know, to me, those people are just so important. I, I, I say it every week, but I live right next to two doctors and I see them going to work every single day. And I just, I mean, they're putting themselves at risk to help someone else. Uh, but this week's a little bit different because, uh, you know, we hear so much about everyone saying we're in this thing together and what's happened in the last few weeks, what's happened in Georgia, what's happened in New York City, what happened in Minneapolis. Uh, to me, it, it's sickening to me and it, 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 it really, really is disheartening. And uh, our country's better than that. And I'm not, a, you know, I'm not one to get on a soapbox, but uh, you know, hopefully maybe somehow, some way, sport eventually when it opens up, it can bring people back together. But we need to have everyone pulling in the same direction. And it really is disheartening what we're seeing on a, on a daily basis and uh, disturbing, disheartening. And uh, hopefully we can find a way to be better than that. And, uh, and people can have greater respect really for each other. But I appreciate you guys being here. And uh, what we've done to start off the show each week is we talked about uh, the last dance and, you know, just kind of takeaways and things of that nature. And, you know, Val, you do a great program with the Big East uh, with all your with all your members uh, for basketball, and you bring all well, I think it's your incoming freshmen together and educate them on basically the pitfalls of media, social media, and, and the transition to college. Is there anything from the last dance that you will potentially take to help kind of educate your group in making that transition to uh, to college? Thanks, Seth. I, I loved Last Dance. I mean, for me, it was a trip down memory lane because I was working at the NBA at that time. And we had started the WNBA and I'd worked on the first dream team in Barcelona. So it was really incredible to see colleagues and, and again, relive some of those incredible stories. Um, as it relates to um, getting our athletes ready for life on the big stage of basketball, um, you know, I think um, the first takeaway that I would offer is that, yeah, these guys are under a pretty big spotlight. Um, the demands made on young basketball players now uh, by, by the media, for example, the scrutiny that they're under, the idea that cameras could be just waiting in the wings to take in a, a comment, um, you know, is I think uh, an important lesson for them to learn as they think about how to conduct themselves in a very public way. So we do offer some tips on that. We bring in um, NBA um, general managers to kind of talk about what it takes to succeed on that big stage. And for these young men, it really is going to be a growing process. They're not going to know what to do uh, once they get started. But your hope is that by the time they get through college for as long as they're there, and then certainly they get into the NBA, they learn the do's and don'ts about how to conduct themselves, in, again, in such a public way. Yeah, that, that program is a model program. It, it blows my mind that every conference in the country doesn't adopt that philosophy because it is a transition. You can say kids are on social media earlier, but they don't understand the impact of their words, their messages, their texts, their Instagrams, and the lasting effect they could have on them. 
Uh, Terry, question for you. You had to prepare for Jordan when you were with the Sonics. What was that like? Um, you know, obviously it was a great team. And um, I, I think we felt confident that we, uh, we, we could win the series. We had split with them during the regular season. Uh, you know, it's uh, we were kind of riding the wave after beating Utah in game seven in the Western Conference Finals. But in preparation, you know, you, you, when you go into a series and you've won 65 games and you've had success, you really don't want to go away too much from what got you there. So, uh, you know, I know there's been a lot of discussion about Gary Payton, uh, Gary Payton guarding Michael Jordan, and that certainly was one of the adjustments that we made as the series went on. But, um, you, you know, the thing about uh, the Bulls in the 90s and the triangle gets a lot of uh, publicity, but uh, the the NBA game of the 90s was a lot of side pick and roll, direct post-ups, isolation. So the triangle offense with the movement, you have, first of all, you have two great players, uh, three with Rodman, but it was it was a difficult because there's more movement than a lot of teams used back back in the 90s. Uh, and then you throw in great players in addition to that. So, uh, you know, a lot was made of the matchups, but we were a team that switched a lot anyway. Um, I read a I read a good article in the, the Seattle Times that kind of reviewed it because, you know, it's 20 years ago, so I kind of forgot a lot of this stuff. But, you know, Nate McMillan was really a, a valuable part of that that team, and he was battling injuries during that final series and wasn't at full strength. Uh, but our preparation was uh, do what we do. You know, we were a good defensive team. And to be honest, uh, in preparation for for Chicago, you do the defensive preparation, but they were such a good defensive team that scoring was scoring was at a premium. And you one of the things that I've noticed during watching the last dance, you looked at some of those final scores, uh, Chicago versus Utah, Chicago against us. I mean – scores were in the 70s and 80s so it was a it was a different game back then as well yeah they had three of the best defenders in the league maybe three best defenders maybe at at one time in the history of the league now Val being in the NBA office could when that rock show was going on what did it mean to the NBA office and, and how did you like just watching it in person evolve what was that all about well, it was really a, a glory, a glory era um, in the NBA back then. I mean, you were at that point in the, um, you know, the early to mid nineties, the dream team, the dream team um, had of course hit 92 again in 94. Let's go to your league right now. Your league right now, obviously you have a meeting with your presidents or a phone call with your presidents coming up day to day managing, bringing players back to campus. When, when got coaches will be able to maybe even have exposure to their players. Uh, you've got a bunch of different states and municipalities, a bunch of different governments. How are you monitoring that, and how will you make a decision as a league moving forward? Well, it is, it is challenging, um, Seth, because we're in 11 different jurisdictions, 10 states plus, the, plus D.C., we expect that the governors or the mayor, in the case of DC, are going to have their own decisions, their own minds to make up about when it's safe to resume. Um, you know, we um, won't have any set policies there for the conference. Every school will be making its own decision about return to play and the appropriate timeline and deadline there. 
Um, we expect to know more in about a month because that's when our presidents um, are telling us that they'll know what the status of their campus reopenings will be come come August and September. My guy, Ed Cooley shows up. Oh Incredible my. shrinking man. Oh Ed my Cooley, God. you're on with Coach Stotts and, and Val. Val's working off her cell phone. You obviously have a big time computer in front of you. This just, I mean, I felt like a, a two-year-old trying to figure out this computer. Hey, Seth, can you hear me? I may, maybe I'll pop off and try to get back on. Would that help? Yeah, let's give that a shot. Ed Cooley, we were just talking about uh, just in general, and we talked about this yesterday, you and I. Uh, when will your players be back on campus? Will they? Who, who dictates when you can get your an opportunity to, to be with your guys? And how much pressure is on the families of those players being at home as opposed to being on campus this time of year? Well, I think many of the coaches for football, men's and women's basketball, and for many uh, scholarship student-athletes, um, once they go to college, they basically come off the payroll for their parents. And some of our families are really struggling to just feed our kids. Uh, so that is a major concern with all of us. Uh, as far as when we're getting back to school, I know the NCAA allowed us on June 1st to have our guys back on with no you know, athletic related activities that we can conduct. Um, so I think it goes from the governor and then from the governor to our school president and board. Um, that I think everybody will be on board because it is in the best interest to get our student athletes back and to try to assimilate what could happen once we do get back into the real world of um, having kids on campus. Not so much to use our guys as guinea pigs, so to speak, but what's going to be the new norm once we do get kids back to campus uh, overall. Terry, your, your practice facility is open now. Uh, obviously, uh you can't be involved. You can have a certain number, limited number of players uh, in the facility. What are you guys trying to get done now or the players are trying to get done now? And then moving forward, if the NBA does come back, you're going to have a, a window of two or three weeks, I guess, which is a long preseason for NBA guys because you guys go back three days to start playing exhibition games. Yeah, you know, right now, uh, I forget how long ago we opened up the practice facility. It's probably been at least uh, two or three weeks now. But I think the main thing we're getting uh, getting done now is guys are being are able to get on the court. They get their shots. They get some conditioning. They're in the weight room working on their bodies. So it's a lot of fine tuning. Uh, the the restrictions that have been put on, you know, you only can have one coach and one player, one basket, uh, only one player in the weight room at one time. So uh, only four players can be in the practice facility at one time. So if you got four guys in your facility, one guy has to leave for another guy to come in. So it's really, uh, there, there are some restrictions that maintain the safety. Uh, but I think it's, we have 10 players of our 14 man roster. We have 10 players in Portland right now. And today, for example, all 10 players will be in here during their during their time slot, just getting the work in. I think uh, after being isolated for so long, they're just glad to get out of the house, uh, work up a sweat and uh, and shoot, them, uh, shoot, shoot the ball a little bit. Yeah, so you're going to be able to do that with your guys. But then if, if, if some type of plan moving forward is established, how long will you have – how long do you think you'll have with your team before maybe you could play games? Is that something that has even been in the conversation? How long do you guys need? You know, uh, I'm not even going to answer that with all due respect because I don't know 
nobody really knows what's going to happen, you know, and Val knows she's, she's been uh, in those meetings at the league office. There are a lot of smart guys, uh, a lot of smart people making a lot of decisions, a lot of scenarios. I don't know what's going to happen, but from a player and coach's standpoint, we will, we'll take it as it comes, whether it's a, a two week ramp up a four week ramp up, whatever it is, uh, we'll be ready. But I really, that's one of the things, you know, we as coaches like to prepare and get ahead of, get ahead of the game. And it's really tough to do right now because we don't really know what the parameters are going to be. Ed, you guys, before you play your first game, usually what do you have? You have, a, how many days of practice do you have before your first game? A million. <laughs> All right. Now, Terry, you, you guys have three three days of practice and you're playing exhibition games. I mean, like, hey, can you help Terry a little bit with maybe a little practice organization? Because he's going to have more practice time than he's ever had in his life. Hey, I, I, I know in that sport, it's it's about the players. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean you got some really gifted players on your team, coach. I mean, the, the, the great players make us look like great coaches, correct? You know, hey, that's that no matter what the level, that's true. So, uh, you know, and, and once you get past college, they're accustomed to that accelerated pace at your level. Uh, you know, it's ball screen coverage. It's, it's a quick offense and, you know, get the ball to the best player with great ball movement. You know, if I got somebody like your guy that can make shots, he's going to touch it as many times as we can get it to him. <laughs> well, I was, I was telling Seth before this, uh, you know, in college, you, there's so many demands on, first of all, the things that you have that we take for granted, but you guys do so much teaching and there's sometimes there aren't enough hours in the day to get done what you want to get done. And for us, you know, Seth, actually our, our first preseason game is usually uh, a week after we start practice. And, uh, but the players, uh, you know, they're, they're very talented. They know the game. And so there's not as much teaching that you have to do when you have freshmen. You have four freshmen coming in who, um, you know, they need, there's a lot to be learned. Val, as a, as a commissioner, right, Rudy Gobert basically uh, being catching the virus, basically shut down all of sport and, and basically, thank goodness, it, it happened because obviously it was a precursor to a pandemic in a lot of ways. Uh, the pressure on you as a commissioner to make a decision moving forward, uh, knowing that nothing's changed except how we deal with the virus. How much pressure is that? And, and what, what kind of things go through your mind when you speak to the presidents about moving forward? Well, thanks. Sorry for my technical difficulties. I've got the headset on now oh. and I figured this out. <laughs> when your millennial kid is on the phone and can't help out mom, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Anyway, great to see Coach Cooley as well, my, my guy here. I love that guy. Love you too. Uh, yeah, so it's yeah, so it's a tough spot, obviously, for the leaders um, in our business to be in. Seth, I mean, you know, health and safety is paramount. We're all trying to do the best we can. We all had very tough decisions to make back in March. I can tell you, you know, as it relates to the Big East, we were conferring daily with our board. Uh, Father Shanley, the president of Providence College, uh, was in on the calls together with our other presidents. And we, at the end of the day, we were relying most heavily on governmental authorities. And interestingly, in New York, um, until the day of our quarterfinals, there was no shutdown decision of any kind. I mean, Broadway was up and running. Um, schools were in session. Businesses were open. I work a block from Grand Central Station, and it was jammed. 
So um, th that's the that was the lay of the land uh, not two months ago. So I think the takeaway here is that we will have to continue to rely on these authorities to help guide our decision making. And uh, as I tried to say earlier, when you asked me the question, given that we're in so many different states and D.C., I think it's likely, if not certain, that we're going to have varying um, entry dates for all of our schools, including our, our athletic teams. So it's, it's very complex. And, um, you know, we're just going to have to rely on the science, um, what others are doing to some degree. We'll certainly be looking to the NBA to see how they're going to handle basketball games. Can you and imagine then, a league no season without fans? Can I? I can. I mean, I can. It's not ideal. No one wants it. Um, you know, frankly, our last bit of a game at Madison Square Garden on March 12th was with no fans, essentially, in the building. We had under 1,000 people in the building. Uh, it's not what anybody wants, certainly not what our athletes or our coaches play for. Um, but, you know, if it can be done safely and certainly if, uh, if it can be done in a way that fans who watch our sports on television – can participate. I think that's, you know, that's certainly a fallback position if you need to go that route. No fans in the arena with Coach Cooley on the sidelines. That could be dangerous. It's called an all-access game. <laughs> he You're loves the microphone. I mean, he would be very, very good. And, and just uh, in general, to get, get off this subject a little bit, your story to Providence or yeah. back to Providence, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure everyone really understands. We, we're having a cross-section of NBA people watching this and, and college fans watching it, but your journey to me is absolutely incredible. Uh, just kind of fill, fill the people in a little bit about it because I, it, it's fascinating to me. I was born and raised right here in the city of Providence. I'm, uh, I'm a New England guy. Um, I, I love the Northeast. I love the snow. I love the seasons. Uh, right now, it's it's a peak season for us. A lot of golf, a lot of swimming, a lot of working out. But um, being born and raised here, going to this you know public school system, um, coming from very very tough background, and you know being one of eight children, uh, I am the first um, person in my family to go to college. Not many of us graduated from high school. My grandmother had you know, close to 450 grandchildren and not many of us have gone to college and get, gotten out. Um, I, I just feel like if I can do it and be an example for young men and women that come from a tough background, once given the academic opportunity, um, you can too, you know, you gotta be willing to fail. You gotta be willing to listen. Um, and, and, and I am all in for Providence College. It's a place that's given me an opportunity but prior to getting there, working for Coach Skinner, uh, who was the head coach at University of Rhode Island, then he took me to Boston College with him and from Boston College becoming the head coach at Fairfield and thanking them for giving me my first head coaching job at a very young age. And then coming home, you know, there's, there's a lot of great colleges and universities out there. But for me, everything is about fit. Everything to me is about um, where you belong and the influence and impact that you can have on the greater community beyond basketball and giving young men and women hope um, because uh, statistics show um, I shouldn't be on this conversation with any of you. Um, so I'm blessed. I'm thankful. Father Shanley, our board, uh, very grateful for Val and, and her leadership with our, with, with our conference being a basketball centric conference. Just, just an amazing, I pinch myself every morning. I have two wonderful children and, and a wife. Narisa is my wife, Isaiah and Olivia, my children. Uh, ironically, my daughter is a, 
freshman at Georgetown. So I told her, you know, when we're playing Georgetown, I better know what <laughs> you got on. I can tell you that. <laughs> she, better, she better be the friar when we play that dog. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's just an amazing journey for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm so blessed and so appreciative. Now, Terry, you've had an incredible journey and people that you've worked with along the way. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's incredible. But last year, a year ago, you guys won, what, almost 60 games, and you guys had had it going on, had a bunch of injuries, and you have the, had the virus. Now you guys kind of in limbo. How difficult has this se- season been just in managing injury and expectation? Well, uh, it was difficult. Look, we uh, it was a – up to this point, it's been a, a disappointing season for us in all reality. Uh, going to the Western Conference Finals last year, uh, it was a remarkable season that we had. And sustaining success in this league is is really difficult. It's a zero-sum game. And uh, maintaining a level of excellence is, is – I've always had my hat off to the San Antonios and the Utahs and the Chicagos who were able to sustain excellence over a, a long period of time. But – you know, this year we did have our fair share of injuries to guys who were uh, we we're counting on to contribute. Uh, that's part of the NBA game. Health is – we've been very fortunate to be one of the healthier teams uh, in my tenure here in Portland, and you just got to manage around it. Uh, we lost some games that we probably shouldn't have, and you can't afford to lose those games uh, in this league. And, you know, it's a long season, and you do what you can. Uh, you manage the game. You manage the team. Uh, you never give up because we've had a, a track record of coming on, coming on strong in the second half of the season, and uh, we're on track to do that again. But uh, who knows? Who knows what will happen? But you know, that's part. That's part of the NBA season. Is uh, you know, you're going to have some. You're going to have some difficult moments, and you just got. It's how you manage those moments that's the, the most important thing. That's that's great. Answer. Adversity obviously is the toughest thing. Now we've all had mentors. Val, you've got to have some great David Stern uh, stories or insights that has helped shape you to be the leader you are right now. Well, Seth, he he was certainly one of them. Um, <clears throat> you know, it was really an honor to, to work for David. I mean, he was a tough boss, to be honest. Uh, he made me cry uh, many, many times just because he was such a demanding uh, manager and he had such high standards. And he, he just wanted so much for the NBA. So, so he was very influential in my life, opened many doors for me, as did Russ Granick, the longtime deputy commissioner um, at, the, um, at the NBA, who was sort of yin to David's yang. <laughs> um, they, they, were, they were really fantastic. Rick Welts is a close friend, runs the Warriors, as Terry knows. But I'll also give a, a nod to Dave Gavitt, um, founder of the Big East Conference in 1979, somebody I had the honor of knowing when I was doing early work for USA Basketball. And Dave was just a master politician. He was a very different kind of leader than David Stern was. Um, And I think I sort of drew from each of them. You know, they each taught me sort of different ways of approaching problems. David Stern was a lawyer. Um, Dave Gavitt was sort of, as I said, a really gifted politician who just did such a great job of drawing in um, others, Dave, of course, was a coach by trade, so he really connected um, early on with those iconic early Big East coaches, and I really admired the way he did that. Um, and then I think, but I think at the end of the day, when you're trying to lead, you draw from others, but you have to let your true self shine through. 
And so I'm, you know, I'm definitely a different personality type than the guys that I looked up to. Um, and, you know, and I have sort of taken my own um, path, I suppose. Uh, the last thing I'll say is I, I learned so much from our coaches. I mean, Ed is an amazing leader, uh, as are the other coaches in the Big East. And I, I really admire uh, all they have to do to connect with the athletes and be educators on top of being coaches and winning games is not always easy. It's certainly not in the Big East. Um, so, you know, again, uh, it's been an honor for me to do this. And I hope in turn that uh, kind of the things that I do can be helpful to aspiring leaders as they blaze their own trails. Ed, your man, Skin Man, who we all love. Did that love absolutely him. one of the most underappreciated coaches probably in the history of the game. What the success he had at BC was obviously people were trying to figure it out. What does he mean to you? Al's like a big brother slash father. Um, you know, when I had an opportunity, I was a high school teacher for a couple of years and they had a restricted earnings position uh, in 1996, I believe it was. Um, and he asked if, uh, you know, I went, I remember going for an interview and he said, you don't have to wear a suit and coach is so laid back. You know, he's just the smoothest brother going, man. Um, <laughs> he's just a smooth dude. And I, and I always always say, and I would watch everything coach did. I never, ever left his side after a game for uh, the 10 years that I worked for him. Uh, after a game, I would just listen to him. I would ask him questions. He would yell at me because, you know, he's like, why you ask me that? I said, one day I want to be you. One day I want to be a head coach. So I would listen to his press conferences. I would listen to if he said he should have called a timeout, not call a timeout, substitution pattern, practice uh, practice plans, how he handled the media, how he handled player relationships, how he handled the staff, how he handled donors, how he handled just being in public. I watched everything he did. Um, he is the greatest influence on me in the game of basketball and we are totally totally different personalities he's quiet and reserved and i am the absolute opposite of that and you can fill in the blanks yourself <laughs> there's no, there's no there's no doubt about it and to me the, the thing that made al skinner al skinner was i've never coached against the guy who knew the essence of his team and what exactly his team had to do in that moment in time or uh, to beat a specific opponent Mm -hmm. or the identity of his team. You know, you could walk into watch Al's team play in five minutes. You knew exactly what the identity was going to be. And I mean, to me, that's the most underrated thing in coaching is, that, you know, what's your identity and what's the essence of, of the, who you are and how do you win? So like Terry, you work with incredible guys, George Call, Coach Klopp, mm -hmm. uh, Rick Carlisle, uh, Gerg. Uh, like when you think about, I mean, like you think about the guys that, you work with pioneers and, and trendsetters and guys that, that kind of uh, were so creative. What, what, what are your memories of the guys that have kind of influenced you? Well, you, you know, you got to start with George Carl. Uh, you know, I wouldn't probably wouldn't be in the NBA if it weren't for George. I played for George in Great Falls, Montana in the early 80s. He was a young, uh, young spitfire in, uh, in Great Falls. And uh, because of him and our relationship, I'm in the NBA. But he was uh, he was a bit of a maverick. He was uh, always willing to try new things. He's obviously successful. He very passionate about the game. The players felt his passion for the game. Uh, 
And, you know, he got to be a head coach very early on. I think he was 33 when he got to be head coach at Cleveland Cavaliers. So uh, when you talk about Seattle and the staff that we had in Seattle, you know, I'm a young coach. Uh, that was my, you know, I've been coaching for two or three years. But you talk about George, who will be a Hall of Fame, will be in the Hall of Fame at some point. Bob Kloppenberg, as you mentioned, a lot of people probably don't even know Kloppy, but uh, he was ahead of his time with his defensive principles and his switching and his uh, keeping the ball on the side and picking and rolls and doubling the post. And he was uh, he was uh, a big time innovator. And obviously on the West Coast, Seth, you're a West Coast guy. You know about uh, Kloppy and his defense. Tim Gergerich is a legend. Hopefully he gets in the Hall of Fame. Uh, just the ultimate, just the ultimate coach. Uh, great assistant. He taught me how to how to work with players, how to connect with players. Uh, but Gerg was so much more than just, a, you know, he was kind of labeled as a workout coach, but uh, he was a great, uh, a great uh, breath of fresh air, a sounding board. He, he was gr really good for the head coach. I mean, George really relied on him. And then you throw in Dwayne Casey and I, who were both young guys at the time. Uh, we've gone on to be head coaches and Bob Weiss, who was a veteran player and coach. So that that coaching staff in, in Seattle was remarkable. And uh, at, for me as a young coach to absorb that type of experience and the success that we had in Seattle in the nineties uh, was terrific. And you know, I, I, I'm gonna cut this a little short, but obviously play, uh, being with Rick Carlisle in Dallas uh, was icing on the cake because Rick, as successful as he is, was totally different than George. And able to see another way of coaching and have success doing it kind of broadened my horizons as well. And winning a championship didn't hurt. Yeah. The coaches, it's amazing. The first, one of the first clinics I went to when I, when I was coaching Long Beach state was I went to listen to coach Klopp give a talk on the switching and trapping and all. And literally I was at that time, we call it explaining gaps because I played for Alabama, who was one of the legendary teachers of the game uh, was UB Brown's, high school coach and was coach Charlie Dickinson, Harvard on a hack and sack and later for, for, uh, for coach, uh, Karnaseka. And I, I sat in that clinic and we literally, after listening to coach Klopp and then getting his tape changed everything we did defensively. My second year at Long Beach, uh, going to all switching, all trapping the post. I mean, literally, you know, we had long athletic guys and it literally changed everything they did. And then we had to play against coach Gerg's teams, uh, when he was an assistant at UNLV, and we w went and watched what he was doing in terms of player development and relationships, and I met the guys that you work with are absolutely incredible in terms of just the history of the game, the teaching of the game. But I always say you got to have people that get lost in the game, get lost in the players, get lost in the process, and that staff—that's basically what you guys live to do, which was which absolutely incredible. So. Last thing, just moving forward, we'll wrap it up. Six months from now, Val, we're, 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 or four months from now, what, what, in a perfect world, where do you want to see your league? Well, Seth, in a perfect world, someone's found a vaccine, and it's widely distributable, and we can all get back to our lives. I think that's, you know, at least based on what I'm seeing here and reading, that's, that's the end game, I think, in terms of where we are with our world and our country. Um, I think my, my realistic uh, prediction is that uh, we won't quite get there in four months. Um, you know, I think we're hopefully going to see um, advances 
uh, as we get to the vaccine, in the meantime, I think the sports organizations that are dealing with decisions about their seasons, um, you know, may have a, a bit of a bumpy ride as we try to make decisions about how we can safely resume our activities, what, in the case of college sports, we can do on our campuses, uh, what that looks like for, um, you know, in the case of basketball, the upcoming season, which starts in the fall. Um, and then the myriad of decisions uh, surrounding non-conference schedules, um, conference seasons, tournaments next March, the NCAA tournament in March and April. Um, I, I really wish I had the crystal ball. Um, it would make life a lot easier right now because we're all dealing with multiple models um, and contingency plans. So uh, my, my prediction is we're all just going to have to sort of accept the, uh, the uncertainties that lie ahead. We're going to be working closely with our um, our stakeholders within the Big East, be it uh, the coaches or the ads or the presidents, to try to make good decisions uh, with the information we have at the times we have to make these decisions. Um, and my hope is that we can get a season going. Um, you know, whether it's with or without fans, I don't know, but uh, our coaches want to play, our athletes want to be out there. Our schools, our supporters want to see Big East basketball. Last but not least, I'll just say the plan to get UConn back into the Big East is moving full speed ahead. They're going to join us on July 1st. They're very excited about it. I, you know, uh, I know that's a, it's an old rivalry with PC Ed. So those will be some tough battles uh, for sure. But to have, you know, Seth, as you know, well, the hit, that kind of history returning. It's like, uh, you know, what's old is new again with UConn coming back to the conference. So that that's going to be a great story for us on, on both the men's basketball and women's basketball sides as well. So lots to look forward to. Lots of uncertainty, though, to deal with before we kind of get to where we need to be. And then you'll keep your league office busy anyway. So it makes a difference. It might. <laughs> it might. And, John and Cal, our supervisor of officials is, is ready. He's ready. Cal's ready for him. He's ready. And next month, what 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 do you, what do you hope to happen in the next month for the, for you guys? Well, I mean, I, I just you know naturally, I hope everyone stays healthy. You know, uh, our grandparents and some of our elderly uh, that that uh, you know that that are really suffering. I hope for all of our teams and all of our athletes, um, we get them back to campus and try to uh, reestablish some 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 life. Um, and the next month, I hope to see professional sports back. I am a sports junkie. Um, I can't wait for the NBA to start. I can't wait for, uh, you know, the golf channel to pick up again and watch golf live. Um, just normalcy. But I'm really concerned about just the health and well-being, mental health and well-being of all people in, in a biased way, all of our student athletes across the country on the men's and women's side. And, um, you know, uh, hopefully we can get the NBA back because I think a lot of what we do in college basketball, because I don't know anything else other than college basketball, will be somewhat modeled after what the NBA does. So, Coach, man, get them going on your end, brother. All right, Terry, yours is a little different. Eventually, if you guys do start up, you're going to have a first team meeting. What's kind of the first thing you're going to say to your guys? Um well, you know, it depends on the depends on the format of however we come back to to playing. But you know, the message is: look, we got a chance. We got a chance to win. Uh, we've got Zach Collins and Yusuf Nurkic coming back healthy. Um, it's even even playing floor. Uh, you know, level playing floor. So 
it's about competing. You know, the reason we come back will be to compete and to win, and regardless of what the format. And uh, if we're involved in that format, we go out there, and it's going to be a, a shortened training camp to a degree. Uh, keep things simple, play basketball, and you don't know what's ahead, so make the most of it. That's great. Well, I appreciate all of you to take time. I, I know, Val, you've got a, a very important call, and and I I know you guys are all busy. Uh, I, and the last thing is we will make a little announcement was made today. The TBT, the basketball tournament, that's where I'm wearing a hat, is actually going to uh, look to start up July 4th weekend, uh, 24 teams, 23 games, 10 days. They will have a fully quarantined tournament in one location. They'll be testing prior to beginning of the tournament. They'll be quarantined for a number of days. They'll be testing throughout the tournament, at the end of the tournament, and hopefully – That'll be a little bit of a kickstart and, and, and a test run for moving forward. So we're excited about that. But uh, I appreciate all you guys for being here. And uh, like I said, the most important thing is we, if we say we're all in this thing together. Everyone needs to be in this thing together. And we need to look out for each other and be there for each other. And our country's better than this. We see doctors and nurses and hospital workers and everyone else making sacrifices, being incredible teammates, which is a great lesson for our our players when they come back, but we also need to be better as a country to support each other and put all the other BS aside and be there for each other. So I appreciate you guys being there for us today. Thank you. I appreciate you Thank all. Thank you so much. Vanessa. Thanks, Seth. Thank Thank appreciate it. Well, Thank be you. Safe. Val, be great. I love you. Talk to you Bye, soon. Eddie. Bye, Eddie. Bye, Eddie. See you soon. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.